Good evening. Let's look to the Word of God as we think about this day, this Good Friday. I want to talk about the the question why. Why the cross? Why the garden? Why the cross? And why the garden? Why the cross? You turn to Isaiah chapter 53 with me. Verses 4 to 6, the Lord says through Isaiah the prophet, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities upon him, was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Why the cross? Because it fulfills the promise of God. Because God promised through the prophet Isaiah 700 years before Jesus was born that he would send a savior and that that savior would bear the terrible weight of sin, the the, the pain of sin, the wrath of God. The human condition has never changed. As soon as Adam and Eve fell, we fell in them. Every one of us has abandoned ourselves to our own rebellion. I made the comment a couple of weeks ago, and I think it bears repeating, Being a sinner has nothing to do with being a bad person as we measure badness. It is a legal description of our relationship to our Creator, and that's a relationship of rebellion. Human condition has not changed, neither has the divine answer. There has to be a substitute. There has to be a uh, a substitutionary death, or we bear our own death. Turn now to the book of Galatians in the New Testament. Chapter 3, verse 13. I want to show you that the cross redeems us from the curse of the law. God gave the law to his people to reveal his holiness and to constrain their behavior. To give them boundaries, to give them limits. The, The law promised blessing for obedience and a curse for disobedience. So Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. The the curse of the law is not simply death. The curse of the law is the displeasure of God. We have offended a holy God. 
we are born in offense to that God. We are born living in rebellion. We are born in open hostility to him. Now, somebody might say it doesn't feel open. It doesn't feel like there's a lot of open hostility to God. But this this afternoon, I didn't grab a picture, but this afternoon uh, I did a, a Google image search for angry protests. And, and can you kind of see in your mind the faces? What do you think would happen if Jesus appeared walking through the streets of America, walking through the streets of England, of China, of North Korea, and called those people to repent of their sins or face the judgment of God? You'd see the same kinds of protests. You'd see the same signs. You'd see the same screaming faces, the same red, angry faces. In fact, that appeared at, at uh, uh, last night, early this morning, as we think about the trials, as we think about those who were absolutely torn by anger and embittered hostility toward him. There is open hostility. There simply isn't a God living on earth to rebel against. And so most of the rebellion seems to be very quiet. The curse of the law is the displeasure of God. The cross answers the displeasure of God, the offense of God. And so that we are redeemed not only from sin and death, but from this warfare that exists between ourselves and God. We need to understand that the cross is for us. If you turn to John chapter 10. As Jesus speaks to his disciples and to the Pharisees who were standing around embittered and angry as they often were that he had healed a man who was born blind and healed him on the Sabbath. Jesus says in verse 14 and 15, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. He repeats that several times in these words. I lay down my life for the sheep. He lays down his life on our on our behalf. That's what for the sheep means. But I want you to think about this. He lays down his life in our place. That's what for the sheep means too. The death he died is the death that we deserved. He didn't just die on our behalf. He died in our place. On the cross, Jesus suffered tremendous physical torment, undescribable physical torment. Doctors have tried to go through what takes place during crucifixion, but Anybody who's had even a small surgery will tell you the descriptions never match the reality. Well, hell is a place of physical torment. On the cross, Jesus suffered extraordinary shame, stripped naked, mocked, belittled, spat upon. Hell means inescapable shame and degradation for all eternity, knowing the fullness of sin. Jesus on the cross was forsaken by the Father. We see that uh, in a a graphic sense when the the sun ceases to shine for that three-hour period of time. Hell is the ultimate separation from God. 
Sinners are not yet separated from God fully. He still surrounds them with blessing. He sends the rain on the righteous and the wicked alike. They have families who love them. They have good lives. They have the possibility of healthy lives and pleasure in this world. They're not utterly separated from God, and so they they think that they're okay. But when he is gone, it would be like being without oxygen. What Jesus suffered on the cross is coming to every person destined for hell. What Jesus suffered on the cross will never be suffered by anyone who has trusted him because he bore it perfectly and he completely. Turn to Hebrews chapter 9 with me. I want to show you, too, that the cross was a one-time event. Hebrews chapter 9, beginning in verse 11. The writer here says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. I I want you to see two things here. I want you to see that he did this once for all. That's not once for all people, although he did it once for all people. This word means once for all time. Once for all time. And in doing it once for all time, he secured or obtained an eternal redemption. I've heard it said in the 40 years I've been a Christian now, the 25 years I've been a pastor, I've heard it said by people fairly consistently, whenever you sin as a Christian, God goes back in time and adds that sin on Jesus on the cross. That's utterly stupid. Jesus obtained an eternal redemption. He doesn't need to add to it. He doesn't need to augment it because we blow it. In some way, that seems to suggest that God doesn't know all things, that he doesn't know what we do. He bore our sins in his body on the cross, dying once for all time for all who would believe. He obtained, he secured an eternal redemption so that he never has to enter the Holy of Holies with his blood ever again, ever again. He achieved what no high priest under the law ever achieved. He managed to do it so that it never had to be repeated. Now, I will confess to you, I am not done sinning. But Jesus Christ is done dying. I'm not done sinning, but he is done dying. How else could a single sacrifice made 2,000 years ago satisfy God's wrath against our sins if it wasn't a once-for-all time event that single sacrifice secured obtained eternal redemption not redemption up to a certain point in my life not not redemption until i reach a certain age not redemption uh, of up to a point but not after a point 
This is eternal redemption, redemption without end, redemption that can't be lost. It can't be lost because it's eternal, and that's what eternal means. If he has granted you this eternal redemption, it will never be taken away from you. That's what eternal means. Eternal that isn't eternal has no meaning. So Jesus obtained, he secured an eternal redemption for us by dying for us once for all time. Why the cross? Because God was fulfilling prophecy. Why the cross? Because Jesus became a curse for us and he took away the curse of the law from us. Why the cross? Because Jesus, the good shepherd, laid down his life on behalf of his sheep and in the place of his sheep. Why the cross? To obtain and secure and lock down an eternal redemption. That's why the cross. And so much more could be said, but that's why the cross. So, why the garden? Why the garden? Why do all four Gospels mention Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane? The the synoptic Gospels, that would be Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They're called that because there's a huge amount of of overlap. Why do they go into so much detail about what happened? Everything Jesus ever did mattered. Everything he ever said mattered. What we have in the Gospels is, is, is just a snapshot. It's just a series of snapshots. It's not even a full day of activity from him. 28 chapters in Matthew, 16 in Mark, 24 in Luke, 21 in John. That's not enough to, to even describe a day, much less a lifetime. So every word that's in the Gospels is crucial. Every word that's in the Gospels is given by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. There's nothing there that's there just to fill space. It all matters. And, and when you have the Gospels all talking about an event, that event is really underlined. There are a lot of things that John doesn't talk about in his gospel because the other three had already covered that that material. They'd already covered those stories and that preaching, which is what the gospels were. John writes his gospel 30 or 40 years after the other gospels were written. It's a different time. The church is a different church, and, and he touches on different matters. So when John repeats it, It's in bold print, italicized, and underlined, and then highlighted. Why do they all tell this story? I think that one reason is because of what we see in Jesus' prayer. If you'll turn to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. Beginning at verse 36, then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. 
Jesus is in obvious distress. They could see it and he admitted it to them. He wanted them to watch, which we see just a few verses later means praying, means being alert and being in prayer. But there in his prayer, he says, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Cup is a figure of speech here. Whenever Jesus used the word cup figuratively, it was a reference to his own suffering. It was a reference to the wrath of God being poured out for him. A, a, a cup of wrath that he would drink to the last drop. His suffering begins not too long after they get to the garden. I think that they were probably in the garden about three hours. And it begins with the arrival of Judas, who comes to betray him through a false display of friendship. Judas betrays him with a kiss. Uh, From a practical sense, the kiss makes sense. In spite of the full moon, it's going to be dark among the trees. It's probably 3 o'clock in the morning or 4 o'clock in the morning. The authorities would have expected Jesus and, and his men to be asleep. So these covered shapes on the ground, they want to get close and take him into custody before he has a chance to see what's going on and get away. So Judas comes in happy and smiling. No reason to be afraid here. And by the way, kissing is not a sexual thing. Even in, in our world today in Europe, men kiss as a matter of greeting. They kiss on the cheek. In South Africa, men kiss on the lips as a greeting. They, they did, when we were there, they did not kiss me. But Judas' kiss, more important, though, also fulfilled prophecy. Psalm 41.9 says, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. So Judas' kiss is a, the beginning of Jesus' suffering and that betrayal. It continues. He's arrested like a common criminal, a violent criminal. He's forcefully dragged to several kangaroo-fought fraudulent trials. He's wrong or falsely accused. He's wrongly convicted. He's handed over to the Romans for execution, which is interesting. The Jews could and did execute people by stoning. They, they took up stones more than once to stone Jesus, and he escaped. They did take up stones and stone Stephen in Acts chapter 7. Why not stone Jesus? Why hand Jesus over to the Romans? Well, you've got the biblical prophecy calling for crucifixion, which they couldn't do. Perhaps from a practical point of view, they wanted to maintain a veneer of plausible deniability with the crowds who liked Jesus. If we turn it over to others to execute him, it's, it's not us doing it. And frankly, stoning is relatively quick, and I think they wanted him tortured. I think they wanted him to suffer. Going on, Judas was rejected by those who preferred Barabbas. Barabbas is called a robber. That word, though, means an insurrectionist or a murderer. The name Barabbas means son of Abba. In Mark's gospel, Jesus prays, My Father, Abba, if it's possible. Linda was pointing out, we were talking on the way up, that she read something or heard something today that Barabbas is in a prison cell. 
and he's locked away, and he can't hear much of what's going on, but he can hear the crowd shouting. What are they shouting? We want Barabbas. We want Barabbas. And then what do they shout? Crucify him. Crucify him. And they drag Barabbas out. And perhaps Barabbas at that point is thinking, this is my time. Here it comes. And he walks out and finds that there's a substitute. Jesus literally took his cross. There were three. Two other thieves all set up. Jesus is tortured. He's stripped naked, forced to wear a crown of thorns, spat upon, struck and beaten, whipped with a scourge, which is multiple cords with bits of metal and bone tied to them so that they tear the skin and the muscle. He's forced to carry his own cross to Calvary. He's crucified. He's mocked while he's dying. And most of all, most of all, he is the object of the Father's wrath. As he bears the awful wrath, the awful weight of sin, And he bears that wrath until the Father is satisfied. Not until he's done, not until Jesus has had enough, but until the Father is satisfied. That's when he says, it is finished, and he gives up his own spirit to death. That is the cup that Jesus says, Father, if it is possible, remove this cup from me. We're only told three things that Jesus prayed in the Gospels. It's very rare to have his actual words recorded. We're told these words, I believe, because he wants us to know that every avenue was explored, that the only way of salvation is through his cross. This wasn't a first guess. This wasn't the first thing that came to God's mind. There is no way to redeem sinners apart from the cross. There is no way to satisfy the wrath of holy God apart from the cross. The cross is absolutely necessary. It's the way that God intended and decreed that he would satisfy his wrath and redeem a people for his own glory. What better way to illustrate the necessity of the cross than to have Jesus ask, is it possible to do this a different way? And the obvious answer is no. And he says, nevertheless, not my will be done, but yours. Why the cross? Why the garden? Why the garden so that we would know that the cross was absolutely necessary? And why did God do this? He did it for love. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Not God loved the world so much, but God loved the world in this way. This is the love of God. Romans chapter 5 says, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
1 John chapter 3, verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. And sent his son to be the propitiation, the satisfaction for our sins. This week, Linda met a a young woman who is utterly apathetic about the love of God. She doesn't believe that she's a sinner. She doesn't care that God sent his son as a sacrifice. She obviously does not belong to him. She is absolutely dead in her sin. I don't mean that as a criticism. It's simply the truth. She can't help it. She is spiritually dead. She is like Lazarus, dead to God, shrouded in her own self and entombed. And only the Holy Spirit can raise her from the dead. And now that Linda has shared the gospel, we are praying that he would do that. But all the discussion, all the sermons, all the books, all the songs, all the movies, all the illustrations in the world are not going to break into a dead heart. But there are many who have been raised a new life, who stumble along and who struggle along in that life. I read a quote today, it takes a moment to take us out of slavery, but it takes a lifetime to take slavery out of us. And so we believe and we stumble forward and we do what we're able to do and we go to the word and we, we get it and it shines in our hearts and our eyes and we go, we go tomorrow and we don't get it. And it seems impenetrable to us. But what we have this, we have what the old hymn says, my faith has found a resting place. Not in device or creed, I trust the ever-living one. His wounds for me shall plead. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. Enough for me that Jesus saves. This ends my fear and doubt. A sinful soul, I come to him. He never will cast me out. My heart is leaning on the word, the living word of God, salvation by my Savior's name, salvation through his blood. My great physician heals the sick, the lost he came to save. For me, his precious blood he shed. For me, his life he gave. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. If your faith is not in Jesus tonight, if it's in nothing or if it's in religion, if it's in good works, stop trying to raise yourself from the dead and believe the gospel and call upon the name of the Lord. And if your faith is in Jesus Christ, then give God the glory because the Spirit did that. The Spirit of God raised you from the dead. You're not a Christian with faith in Christ because you're clever, but because God is merciful. You have a wonderful Savior, a mighty Lord, a trustworthy friend a true companion. He drank your cup that day. He drank my cup that day. He bore the wrath of God against us and he completely satisfied it. He obtained eternal redemption for us. We are not done sinning, but he is done dying. And we live in the joy and the reality of that. Father, we thank you for the tremendous love 
the expanse of love that you poured out upon us in Jesus Christ. And we ask, Lord, that as we continue to ponder these words, as we we continue perhaps tonight and tomorrow to think about Jesus in history dying, this isn't a fantasy, it's not a story, it's, it's a picture of what actually took place. And he was buried. As we think about Sunday and the resurrection, the life that flooded back into his body because you raised him from the dead, because the Spirit raised him from the dead, because as Jesus said, he took up his own life, he raised himself from the dead. Lord, that same satisfaction is applied to us and that same resurrection is ours. And one day, Lord, when you come back, Jesus, you will raise every one of your people from the dead. Not one will be forgotten. Not one will be left in the grave. Not one will be forsaken. Your redemption is an eternal redemption. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we give you thanks for that. In Jesus' holy name, amen.